I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for him. In his word is my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for the Lord, for with him there is mercy. Those are verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 130, which is the psalm appointed for today, Sunday, June the 27th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. It's been a busy week. Um, you know, if you've been a regular listener, then you know something about uh, what's been going on in, in my family, and that is I had a, have a son, Will, who's 28 years old. He had a traumatic brain injury just a little over three months ago now um, that the doctors honestly didn't expect him to live from. They didn't expect him to live the first day even, and there were constant challenges in between that first day and then when he came out of the hospital. Um, but along the way, after the first day, Suzanne and I, my wife, um, his mother, had kind of given him to the Lord that first day. We just didn't know. And we spent much time in prayer that day, more than we've spent in a very long time, which is not surprising. But at any rate, that by the end of that first day, we also were convinced, more really the next morning when we woke up, that, that the Lord was saying something to us about what was going on in his life and, and, and that this was going to turn out okay. Well, nobody believed that. I mean, Suzanne and I were the only ones who did. The, the doctor constantly reminded us, the neurosurgeon, who's a great guy, constantly reminded us he didn't think it was going to work. Um, the trauma doctors, who are the head, um, sort of the head caregivers, or not giver, yeah, they, they were the ones who, who kind of oversaw his care in the neurotrauma ICU unit. Um, they, they were really skeptical that anything good was going to come of this, and, and nobody expected that he was going to live. That's the honest truth. Nurses didn't. Nobody did. Nobody. And, and once they decided, well, he might live, nobody thought that he was going to flourish and that he would come anything back to n- near what was normal for him. And so <clears throat> it's been a remarkable thing for us, Suzanne and I, to, to see this and to see the, the incredible healing that he's been given and to see the wholeness that he now has. It's it's exciting, to say the least, um, to see it. We've, so we've had a busy week this week. We went to... Um, his his primary care doctor and and that went incredibly well and then um, we ended up going to a, had to go to a neuro ophthalmologist this week um, there's not a whole lot of neuro ophthalmologists in the world but anyway th- this guy uh, told us he good guy good good doctor he told us that um, you know this thing should just dis- dissipate he has had some vision problems in his left eye since this happened and but it was there was blood in the vitreous behind. Um, the eyeball and all that, and so that that's dissipating and going away. It's 50% better. It went from 2070 vision to 2040 vision, and then I just in space of one week because we were there a week ago to see a regular uh, ophthalmologist, and so then they they referred um, over to this guy in the retinal center actually, and um, it was really interesting. They did a, a, an ultrasound of the eye, and I had never heard of such a thing, and I, I told the technician that, and she said, "Well, it's, it's not surprising you haven't heard of it. There are only 80 of us in the entire world." Um, so 80 in, in the entire world is, yeah, it's pretty rare. It's, we're fortunate to have somebody like that here in Asheville because it gave them the ability to do more than just peer into the eye. It gave them, uh, the opportunity to see into the eye through that ultrasound technology so that they could see the optic nerve and, and also into the vitreous itself and see where that blood was and see, you know, kind of what its characteristics are and, and measure the change of it. So it's really been an interesting week, but it's been busy and we've been doing things like we've been walking three or four miles a day. Um, so he, he is making this incredible full recovery and it's been such a blessing to see God do this. But there were days along the way 
when people would say things, and, and there would be a little bit of discouragement on our end. And, and my constant prayer every time that kind of thing happened was I knew that what I'd heard God say. And so my constant prayer was, was that I believe, Lord, heal my unbelief, which is the man who, um, while Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, this man brings his son, who uh, we don't know exactly what's going on with him. He's throwing himself into the fire, and he seems to have fits. And the disciples hadn't been able to heal him, and so Jesus steps up, and, and he, this man says to him, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if? You know, where's your faith? And that's when the man's response is, I, I do believe. Heal my unbelief. And, and so that was my prayer constantly. And, and you know, it, what's funny is, is that we should have that attitude always. Because nothing is impossible for him. <laughs> so it's, it, it's the, the faith that we need is that faith which sustains us day after day. And the faith that we walk in and the trust that we walk in. And that's all areas of our lives. It doesn't have to be a, situ- a life and death situation like ours happened to have been this time. But it, it, it's a reminder to me, and a strong reminder, that, that I have not been walking necessarily in that kind of faith. And so the Lord's calling me back. To that kind of faith, and I've experienced this in the in the past. I've certainly been with people who who were in life and death situations that that looked hopeless, and then God did something. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. We're all going to die. That's the end of that story. It's bad theology and bad understanding um, of everything. Frankly, to to say uh, what I've heard people say in the past is that, that if this person is suffering and struggling, there must be some sort of sin in their lives, whether it's an unconfessed sin from the past or whatever. That, um, that is causing this. Well, there are lots of people who walk around with unconfessed sin in their lives who are perfectly healthy. So that's just absolute nonsense to suggest certain things like that. And, and, I, and I just, I, we need to get over this idea of karma. Um, but we also need to, to walk in faith. We need to walk every single day in faith, and we need to walk in faith in every aspect of our lives. Um, whatever it is, the situation is, it, it, it more or less calls for faith, and it calls for us to be called back to Him. But, but it particularly happens when, when um, strange, different, and, and threatening situations uh, arise in our lives. You know? and, and so that, that's what we're going to look at today, is some situations where that happens. The first reading we have is from Second uh, Samuel 1, and it's very weird. I don't know why the, the people who did the Revised Common Lectionary did this. But it's um, 2 Samuel 1, verse 1, and then verses 7 to 27. And you'll see when I read this that, that the context is completely missing <laughs> because of those skipped verses. So let me read the first couple of verses for you, and you'll see what I'm talking about. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind, beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Who is this person? I mean, we know he's an Amalekite, but what in the world is he talking about? Like I said, the, the entire context of this is missing. And so we, let's go put that back. Let's put, put the context part that's missing back into this. So David remained two days at Ziklag is the end of verse 1. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. <clears throat> David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. 
And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. That's the missing context. He, he's, he's talking to David. He has come and run almost 100 miles in about three days. I mean, this guy ran like consecutive marathons plus to get to David. And, and he comes in and tells him the story of, of Saul's death. And so this, this guy's just standing there with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And then he falls to the ground and pays homage to David as though David were a king. And then David wants to know who are you and where'd you come from? And he says that he escaped from the camp of Israel. Well, that's a suspicious statement in the beginning, right? And then he tells us he's an Amalekite. So that's an even more suspicious statement. You're an Amalekite, which is the group of people that Saul was intended to kill, and the people with whom David had just routed. There's so much backstory to this, it's almost impossible to think about doing honor to that part of the backstory um, in in a sermon that also includes two other lessons, but I'm going to try and give you some quickly, just so you'll you'll understand some things about what's going on here. So that backstory is this: Saul was commanded by the Lord to go in and kill the Amalekites. They were he was to he was to completely destroy them. There was not to be one soul among them left alive, including their livestock. Well, he didn't do it. He kept their king alive, and, and he kept some of the livestock, and he didn't do the job that he was given to do. And that's when Samuel comes to him and tells him that, that the Lord has rejected him as king over Israel. And, and we think that's an awful thing. Um, but, but those people made life miserable for the Israelites for a long, long period of time. And, and so what happens here is now David has been on the run from Saul, and he, he, he was probably, we think, on the run from Saul for seven or eight years after Saul was rejected and, and after David was anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. There's about a seven or eight-year lag in there between Saul's um, David's anointing and Saul's death when David can take over as king. Um, and, and so during that time, Saul knows this about David. He feels threatened by David, and he spends much time pursuing him to kill him so that his son Jonathan, who, had, who, who has a covenant relationship with David, and Jonathan supports David's ascension to being the next king of Israel. And so we, we get those two things operating at the same time. Saul's, Saul's pursuing David to kill him, and his son Jonathan, who would be the presumptive heir, is um, supporting David during this period of time. During that period of time, David, on two different occasions, and like I said, I'll talk about this probably in a, in a little lengthier side podcast, not lengthier, but lengthier for this, sort of not, not a digression, it's the backstory. So two different occasions, David has Saul in the palm of his hand, literally at one point David is in a cave uh, with his men, and Saul comes in to relieve himself. David's so close that he can come up behind him and, and cut off a piece of his garment, but he won't kill him. Because he sees him as the Lord's anointed, and he's leaving that judgment and that next step to God. He's not going to kill the Lord's anointed because he was anointed by Samuel as well. Cuts off a piece of his robe, and he feels bad about it. He feels guilty for having done even that little bit against Saul. And so then he tells Saul, and he repents to Saul 
confesses and repents what he has done. And Saul says, you're a more righteous man than I am. I'm chasing you. What didn't stop Saul from doing that? He continued to do it. And a few chapters later, we see this same thing again. David and, and another come into the camp of Saul, and he's sound asleep. And his spear's at his head. And the, the other man in this story says, hey, just let me run him through with the spear, pin him to the ground right here. We don't even need a sword to do this. And David says, no, he's the Lord's anointed. We can't do it. And so David then blames the commander of the army for not being awake and alert and watching over the king. Because he won't come against the Lord's anointed. David just won't do it. And, you know, is that in keeping with perhaps a Levitical law and a law that Jesus actually speaks into at one point? And that's from um, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. <clears throat> and then it continues, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so, okay, it's talking about the sons of your own people. So it's, are we talking about tribal thing or are we talking about the entirety of Israel? And it's clearly talking about the entirety of Israel. It says, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And in addition to that, he's the Lord's anointed as the king over Israel. Even though the Lord's rejected him, he is still the king. But David's going to leave all of that to the Lord. To sort that out. He, he's not going to act as king. He's not going to claim the throne. He's not going to kill Saul. He's not going to pursue Saul. He's running from Saul during all that period of time. And so when this, so, oh, wait, I've got one more thing to say. <laughs> so David, during the time he's running, ends up in, in the land of um, the, the Philistines. And, and he goes there and, and he says, hey, just give me a place to be because I've got all these men with me, and I don't want to be a burden to you, so just give me a city of my own. Let me go down there and take some place in the wilderness, and then, and then I'll sort it all out. I'll, get them, I'll make sure they stay fed and all this, and there's a long story to that. But anyway, at one point he's asked to go with the Philistines to fight the, uh, the Israelites, and it would be in this battle. And, and he goes, and he's running at the head of the army, and his men are at the head of the army, and they get near to the battle, and the Philistine soldiers say, no, 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 we don't trust him. And, you know, hey, how would you, right? So, so the king says, all right, David, you go back to Ziklag. Well, David and his men turn around. They've, they've, they've gone about 50 miles, and they turn around, and they have to go back to Ziklag. <clears throat> and they get back to Ziklag, and they find it burned to the ground and nobody there. Well, what had happened? Well, a group of Amalekites, the people Saul was supposed to have killed, had come in and raided the, raided the town, took the men or the women and the children, and then burned the whole place to the ground. And so David then has to go find these people, and that's a story in and of itself. But then he finds them, and he, he destroys the Amalekites. About 400 of them get away. So these Amalekites, uh, very recently, <laughs> two days before, David had routed them and gone back to Ziklag because they had burned his city to the ground and taken the women and children as hostages. Now, they got them all back. But you, you can see why David might have a problem with an Amalekite, and especially one who describes himself as having escaped from Israel's camp. Well, why... What do you mean you escaped? You were clearly a prisoner. And then what do you mean you happened to be at Mount Gilboa and you see this? You see Saul dying. And so what does he do? He runs him through. Saul says, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. In other words, I'm going to die anyway. Go ahead and run me through. Get this over with. I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he couldn't live after he had fallen. You were sure, were you? So, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet. So he brings them to David, and David now can look at these things and say, yes, those are Saul's. So David took hold of his clothes and tore them and did all, <clears throat> so did all the men who were with him there. I mean, these are people who had been running from Saul and fighting Saul's army for seven or eight years, and, and yet they're still mourning for Saul. They've taken on their leader's attitude. 
And that's, a, that's, that's exactly what a good leader would do. And, and so they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and for the house of the Lord because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a sojourner, son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You've come to tell me this story. Why, why did it not bother you? Why were you willing to do that? And David, like I said, had reason to. And had been unwilling to do it. And I guess this guy's response could be, well, it was a mercy killing, and he asked me to do it. But, but David has experience of this. David has experienced this exact thing. There were priests in Nob, or Nob, who supported David and who gave him aid and comfort. Saul, in pursuit of David, finds this out, orders his man, his servant, to kill him, kill the priests at Nob, and, and he refuses to do it based on that same ground. These are the Lord's anointed. And so what happens is Doeg, an Edomite, somebody from outside of Israel, volunteers to go ahead and do this thing. And so David is, is saying, no, no, you can't do this. And so he said, why were you not afraid to do it? David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said, your blood be on your head, for by your own mouth you've testified against yourself, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. And so what has happened here is, is this murder in David's eyes, and he killed the Lord's anointed, even though David was on the run from him. He still considered him to be the Lord's anointed. And so this guy has sinned grievously against the Lord and against David and his son and Saul's son, Jonathan. And his willingness to come and tell David this is evidence of one basic thing, and that is he's not gloating. He's hoping that David will reward him. He assumes that David is the kind of guy who would have done it himself if he'd had the opportunity, and we know that David didn't. And so... so is it is an excusable thing? I mean, we, we listen to this story and, and we don't get the backstory, and so we don't see why this would be right for David to do this. He's not taking vengeance. He he is he, he, even after Saul's death, he said his death must be avenged. Even though he was going to die, you couldn't possibly have known that for certain. And, and your story doesn't add up. You're you you are you uh, got away from captivity and you happened to be in Mount Gilboa. Well, then these things don't make any sense. This, this, this story doesn't make any sense. And what I encourage you to do is go back one chapter, which would be the last chapter of 1 Samuel, and what you'll find is Saul died by, by killing himself. And, and we know that he did because he asked his armor-bearer to do it, and his armor-bearer said, no, I can't do it. I won't, just, I won't kill the Lord's anointed, even though it looks like he's going to die. And so then he looks and he sees that Saul's fallen on his sword and killed himself and that he is dead, and then he does the same. Because he's failed in his duty to protect his king. So there, David, though, had extraordinary faith. He was on the run for seven or eight years, but rather than sin by, by going against the Lord's anointed, David waited on God. He waited on God to do and make him king. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He waited on the Lord. You know what? We're bad at that. <laughs> we want to get things done in our time because we recognize we have limited amounts of time and God knows that too. And sometimes when we act that way, we act as though God doesn't know we have limited time. Well, he knows not only we have limited time, but that we also have a specific thing that he wants us to accomplish and do. And, and there's plenty of time for that. He knows exactly how much time is needed to do that. And that's the more important thing. And so then David composes a, a, a lament hymn 
about Jonathan and David, and I'm not going to read that one part of it to you today. And then, because well, I need to move on, and I, and I want to jump on to, to um, the, the lesson from 2 Corinthians 8, 7 to 15. So Paul is, is speaking to the Corinthians, and he's asking them to pony up some money for the relief of Christians in other places. And so he says, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, all earnestness, and in our love for you, uh, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the eagerness of uh, earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Because these other people have given money. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. And so a year ago, there was, there was, they were in poverty themselves, apparently. There was a, there was a problem uh, economically in Corinth at that time. And he says, you started to do this, but you also desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring, it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So in other words, you said you wanted to do it a year ago. You know, hey, if we just had the means to do it, we would, we would help. And you didn't have the means, and so I get that, he says. But now you do. So prove it. Prove that you actually wanted to do that by doing it. And so he said, if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So if you wanted to do this and you didn't have the means to do that a year ago, but you do now. Nobody's, nobody's blaming you for failing to do it a year ago when you weren't literally were not able to do it. But now it's different. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Well, it's been an interesting week for me in, in another way, too. I had a correspondence with uh, a dear sister who is in Uganda. And so she told me this week that the country there is in a complete lockdown and they're, they're not able to do anything. And so she sent me, I, I just said, well, I was completely unaware of this. And what she says is this, that in Uganda only a million were vaccinated and the other vaccination that just arrived in the country, they're still continuing with some essential workers who missed the second dose or shot. But for us, we're kept by God because me and my husband, we're just ordinands. In other words, they have not been ordained yet. They're, they're, they're those who will be, hopefully, waiting and believing God that one day we shall be ordained in the Anglican Church. Please pray for God's provisions, healing, and protection for everyone in Uganda, especially us, whom the government workers call vulnerable poor, who cannot afford even one U.S. dollar meal a day. And I was cut to the quick, you know. I may not be a real wealthy guy, but the reality is that's awful. Can't even afford a one dollar U.S. meal a day. She says, life is very hard in Africa, but our leaders in the outside world don't care. Only God cares about us. They only term us as the vulnerable poor left in the mercies of God. Well, if you're left in the mercies of God in that way, the reality is we should be able to provide. We should be able to help her, help our sister, help our brothers and sisters in that same situation. I mean, it's, it's awful to me to read that. I mean, I, we, I don't care what you have. You're wealthy. I mean, you literally, if you have a, a house that's climate controlled, that you have indoor plumbing, that you have electricity, that you have da-da-da-da, you have food, that we have a responsibility for our brothers and sisters in that same way. And so when Paul says that, I mean, the, the reality is what I told her was I had no idea. 
The news media has not covered that. I had no earthly idea of the suffering in Uganda right now. And I was just crushed in my spirit. And so my prayer is, is that we can find a way to help our brothers and sisters in Uganda. And so how do we do that? That's the big question. And so I would ask that you pray about that and you find a way to provide relief for those brothers and sisters that we have in Uganda in the same way that Paul appeals to the Corinthians here to do that. Hey, you just had the desire to do it. You said, I would, but, well, here's the thing. Maybe we can find a way to do that. I'll try and find some places to donate that, that I can trust um, and, and post something on the Faith Seeking Understanding website, which will be it's linked on this podcast page. But, but, I mean, I'm crushed by this because I had no earthly idea. And, and like I said, I can do something. Could I do a dollar a day to, to help my brothers and sisters in Christ? Could I do two? Could I do five? What is it? What is it we can do and what is it we should do? And so, it, but, but they're living in faith, in this rock-solid faith that all will be well because they believe that they know who's ultimately in charge and who their provider is and whose mercy it is that they appeal to. And exactly what that... Um, psalm that i read at the beginning is my soul waits for the lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning O israel wait for the lord for with the lord there is mercy with him there's plenteous redemption he shall redeem israel from all his sins so so we need to come to the aid and comfort of our brothers and sisters in this way and in this passage from the gospel today in mark 5 21 to 43 it begins again and again we begin in this weird place right so when jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side uh-huh a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Well, the first part of that story is when Jesus goes across the sea to the country of the Gerasenes and heals the Gerasene demoniac that he finds there in the, among the tombs who is possessed by demons and has been for a long time. And, and there's so many of them that they don't even bother to tell their names. They just say, we're legion. There's so many of us that don't bother with our name. We're legion. And so <clears throat> he has gone there, and he, he went there clearly just, he said, I must go there. Well, no Israelite must go to the land of the Gerasenes. They thought that was one of the portals of the gates of hell, actually. And Jesus had gone there, and he'd been among the tombs with a demon-possessed man who was bleeding, and then pigs come into the situation. I mean, it doesn't get much more ritually horrible than, than for him to have been that. So when he comes back, this crowd's waiting for him. Well, Jesus is somebody you should avoid at all costs if you want to remain ritually pure and be able to go to either the synagogue or the temple. In spite of the fact there's this huge group of people there, and one of the rulers of the synagogue came, he had to have known this. His name is Jairus, we're told, and seeing him, Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. This man's so desperate that it doesn't matter to him. I I didn't really see what happened over there. Maybe you didn't see anybody, or I'm I'm closing my eyes to what had happened over there. And so I need you to come into my house. Well, in any other circumstance, if you had known all the things that I just listed, you would not invite that man into your house if you were an observant Jew. And he must be, he's a ruler of the synagogue. So then a great crowd follows him still and thronged about him. They're all around him. And, and that's dangerous, too, because if you touch him, you contract the, um, the impurity of the situation that he had just come from. So there was a woman there who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and no better but grew worse. I mean, everybody knew it. She's going to physicians. So if she's going to physicians, then the whole community knows that this woman is impure. And you can't touch that woman. She can't touch you. She's like a leper. She has to tell you 
of her problem, but she's there, and she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I mean, if this woman touched anybody else in that crowd and they found out about this, she, she is not just going to be an outcast. She's going to be an outcast forever. They could stone her for this because she intentionally made other people impure. And yet she, she is so desperate that she reaches out based on what she's heard. If I can just touch his garments, that's her faith. I don't even need to talk to him. I believe that if I just touch his garment, not, even, not his person, his garment, still impurity is, is, is imputed through that. But she does it, and then suddenly the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body she was healed. And Jesus then turns around and said, Who touched my garments? Because he felt something go out of him. And the disciples all look at him and say, do you not see all these people around you? Can't you see the great crush of people here? And, and you want to know which one of them touched it? Well, probably all of them did. But Jesus knew that her touch was somehow different from their touch because if something went out of him, we're told. Power had gone out from him. It, it, it doesn't mean that his power was diminished. It just means that some sort of power went out from him. And so she admitted it. She said, it was me. And he told, she told him the whole truth, but she came in fear and trembling because what could possibly happen here, what could possibly happen is horrible, is that, that Jesus could have teed her up. How dare you do this thing? And, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I mean, it's just, oh, how wonderful would that have been for her? And, and while he's still speaking, there came somebody from the ruler's house. Now, the ruler's seen this. He can't deny that he's seen this. It happened in the midst of all these people. And so he could have said, I'm sorry, you can't come to the house now because you just contracted that impurity. And if you come into the house, then you're going to make everything in my house impure, including me. It, it, and the, somebody comes from the house and says, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. He doesn't have to go into the house. He didn't have to do that. But it breaks all the rules but he's bringing healing along with him. Nobody's got time to worry about this stuff. There, there's a child in danger. There's a child who is about to die. And so they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And, and he entered, and he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And, and their response is, is to laugh at him. Because they're, they're like, We saw her. You're, you're not even in the room yet. We, no, no, no. We know she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead, as they say of the wicked witch in uh, The Wizard of Oz. No, they know. They laugh at Jesus. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. But he puts them all outside, kicked them all out of the house, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, who are Peter and James and John. They take him into where the child was. He takes her by the hand and says, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And strictly charged them now that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I'm telling you what I've experienced over the last three months is almost uh, for a long time, period of time, and even now, today, every single day when, when I get up and, and Will's perfectly fine, is radical amazement. Well, you can only come into a place where you can experience radical amazement if you have radical faith. And radical faith calls us to believe whatever God's told us with all our heart and to not doubt. No fear. The, the other thing radical amazement does and radical faith does it's a willingness to sacrifice on the half on behalf of our brothers and sisters 
and to avenge any injustice done to them. Those are three aspects of faith. Is the way we care about others and the way we believe God in all these things. It's a call to that, but, but, but if you would experience this radical amazement that I've had over the last three months to watch God do things day after day after day, you'd, you'd learn something about radical faith. Our problem is we, don't, we, we can learn things, but we don't hold on to that learning, and we, we let them slip. It's important for us to persevere in that faith even after the thing that we prayed for has been accomplished. It's like basically, Lord, give me something else to pray for that you want to do. Because I want to see that. I don't want to stay in this place of radical amazement. Watching you do things that only you can do. And whatever I have is yours. Because that's where I want to be. Is in the place where I see you working every single day. Doing incredible things. You've done it for me. Now I'm going to pray the same way that you do it for others. And I'm so appreciative of those who are with us on this journey. And who, who are still with us on this journey. But I'm so grateful to him. Because he has restored my faith and he has restored my strength in exactly the way that psalm says.